Psalm 119, verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. Romans chapter 13, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this is Baptism Sunday here at GCF. We baptize people at least once a year. There are occasions where we will baptize uh, individuals outside of our normal annual picnic. However, with today's subject being, or, or today's emphasis being baptism, I wanted to highlight what I believe is the most important aspect of baptism, which isn't squabbling about the mode of baptism or who is to be baptized, but rather what it is that we are called to in baptism. One of the central distinguishing aspects of the way that we think about baptism at GCF is that we understand baptism is not just a stake in the ground, a testifying of what God has done in our lives, although that is important, but it also is a calling forth into a new way of life, a new manner of life. And so I wanted to emphasize this, and, and it just so happened that in the providence of God, the lectionary, the schedule of readings that we follow, Romans was on the docket for today. And interestingly enough, uh, for those of you who were here at 
the fellowship hour, the Sunday school hour earlier, we're going to actually be reading from Romans 6 again at the close of the service. Why? Because I believe the Holy Spirit is speaking in concert today. He is wanting to emphasize, you who have been baptized, you are dead, and you are being called to life in Christ. And so, likewise, I I feel that it is important for us to remember what it is that we are claiming when we are claiming Christ by faith, and what it is that we are professing that we are moving towards and living towards, uh, where it is we're going so to speak. So I want to look at four aspects of today's message or today's reading. I want to look at it first as the righteous use of the law of God. We've spent a lot of time, if you've been here over the last few months, we were in the book of Galatians, and we saw how despite what most Christians think today, the law has no use for them or they have no use for the law, it actually is the case that Paul over and over again appeals to the law where we tend to make distinctions and, and uh, disparity, Paul appeals to and Paul, Paul joins together. And so I want to look at what does it mean for us to use the law of God in a good way? What is a righteous use of the law? And just on the onset, I want to say that it is not seeking to be justified by doing the law. The law can justify no flesh, as we saw in the book of Galatians. It is not that we seek to be justified by the law, but rather the law teaches us of our need for Christ, and then, upon coming to Christ and being being made new creations, we desire to walk out the law. We desire to keep the law from our heart. I want to look at Paul's calling to the Romans to come awake as a unique call to the Christian church. When we read the New Testament, it's so easy for us to take the word and we play pitchfork with the word. Have you ever heard this phrase? We take the word; it's it's good. It's it's food for us. We're sheep's. It's good. It's good food, and we throw it over our shoulder. I hope that brother heard. I hope sister so and so was listening today. Wish my kids were here. That that's what we do. But what I want to emphasize is Paul is writing a letter to Christians. He's writing a letter to Christians. He's just given them 12 excellent chapters worth of theology, and now he's calling them to stop sleeping. And, and I want to I show how that is not a call to regeneration. That is a call to awaking from deadness and dullness of spirit that, is, that so, many, uh, so often we are susceptible to. Then he calls them to repentance from sinful ways. And by this, we do not mean specific or rather general sin, but rather specific sins that Christians engage in. And then finally, this idea of putting on the Lord Jesus Christ and making no provision for the flesh. I believe this is two sides of the same coin that Paul commands them to live in a way that does not allow the flesh to be revived. That is, a provision for the flesh would be a, a food or a shelter or a way for the flesh to rear its ugly head, so to speak, and and. Uh, I believe he's calling them to stop making opportunities and excuses and compromises with the flesh, which, as we're told in the New Testament, has been crucified with Christ. So, uh, getting into today's reading, uh, we're not going to expound on the psalm that we heard, but the psalmist tells us that it's right to love God and ask for God's understanding and wisdom in applying the law of God. And I want to just emphasize we have one Bible, 
And that Bible is authoritative for all of the Christian life. Certain things in the scriptures, which were cultural provisions given to the nation of Israel, have passed away. Nevertheless, what David is speaking of, uh, or at least the psalmist, maybe David didn't write Psalm 119, what this psalmist is speaking of is a love for God's word. And likewise, Paul says the law is holy, righteous, and good if one uses it lawfully. What we seek to do in reading the scriptures is a righteous use of God's law. We, we as Christians ought to ask God for wisdom and understanding as this psalmist does. And though we are justified by Christ alone, we likewise desire to walk in God's ways. It is not, the Christian life is not a justification by faith a atonement given by Christ and applied to you by the Holy Spirit, and then a continuing on in whatever way you wish. The Christian faith begins with justification, and it must necessarily progress to sanctification. And sanctification is nothing but the, uh, the aligning of one's life to God's word. And when I say God's law, God's word, I mean, I mean all of it. I'm not just speaking of Exodus. I'm speaking of all of the scriptures, God's law for man. So many Christians today, however, are living in such a way as they claim to have an interest in Christ, but they have no desire to amend or change the way they live. That is to say, they, they will claim Christ, they will claim the benefits of the covenant, that God's mercy is everlasting, that he remembers mercy to a thousand generations, and yet they live as if they are strangers to the covenant. They want to be atoned for by Christ, but they have no interest in becoming like Christ. And I want to say, in the strongest possible terms, that is uh, schizophrenic in its understanding of what the gospel is. We have been claimed by Christ, we've been bought with a price, we've been transformed, and we ought to desire, it ought to be the initial fruit of conversion, is to desire to live according to God's ways and God's word. They attempt, modern Christians attempt to divorce God's law from his gospel. You often hear about this as a theological term, but unfortunately, that law and gospel di- distinction has been picked up unknowingly, and, and, and sometimes it's assumed that they are opposed to each other. No, they speak together. They are in concert. One tells us of our need for Christ, and one announces the great provision in Christ. But they go hand in hand. They speak together. They don't speak against each other. Paul instructs the Romans in this passage that loving your neighbor is keeping the law. See, many Christians today, they'll say, well, I don't really have an interest in God's word. I just really want to love God, and I want to love Jesus, and I'm not interested in theology. You often hear it posed in this way. I just, I'm a Jesus-only kind of person. But the problem is, once you say that, you then have to back up what you're saying. Well, who is Jesus? Oh, well, I believe he's God's son. You're immediately doing theology. When you begin to say that you, you want to be a Jesus-only Christian, or you, you're not interested in keeping God's word, you just want to love God, well, Paul, as he says in these passages, he teaches us that that is the definition of love. Love and law-keeping are not divorced. They are married. And indeed, Paul says they're the same thing. If you've ever had a math class that involved algebra, perhaps you you understand the law of identity. That is, A equals B, therefore, B equals A. 
And what Paul is doing here is he's saying love of neighbor is keeping the law because the law teaches us what love is. You cannot say, I just want to love people and not have a definition of that love. If you posit loving neighbor or loving others, and then you are the one who defines what love is, you have taken God's authority as the lawgiver because the law teaches us what it means to love God, and it teaches us what it means to love our neighbor. This is the greatest dilemma facing the church probably for the next generation is will we be pristinely clear in upholding what the definition of love is? The definition of love is not the acceptance of perversion and all forms of sexuality. The definition of love is not tolerating ongoing consistent sin in a believer's life. The definition of love is found only from God. That is, God as the lawgiver is the one who defines what loving your neighbor is. He says in verse 8, Owe no one anything except to love each other. Yes and amen. Even the nominal Christian would agree we ought to love our neighbor. But then look at what Paul says. He says, except to love one another, for the one who loves has fulfilled the law. And many Christians immediately try to turn this verse on its end. They try to judo-wrestle the theology out of this verse. They say, well, see, I just have to love. That's the new law of the New Testament. I just need to love. But the law of identity is at work here. A equals B, and therefore B equals A. Paul's not saying that now you just have to love in some abstract sense. You just have to accept people. What Paul is saying is, if you've loved your neighbor, you have done the law. And if you've done the law, you have loved your neighbor. Paul's writing therefore assumes or presumes that Christians should be concerned with keeping the law. They ought to desire to fulfill the law. Again, many Christians, we, we, we use the phrase antinomian to describe this. It means that they are against law, antinomos. Uh, anti meaning against or, or opposed to, and noma, a, a law word, a, a, a name or, or a statute given by God. And so they presume there's no law that applies to the Christian, only the mercy of Christ. And, but the gospel is very clear. It is not a division against law and gospel. They speak together. The one who's justified by Christ wishes to take on the manner of Christ's life, which is exactly what Paul commands them to do. Christians ought to be concerned with fulfilling the law. And by that, I do not mean they ought to be worried with, have I fulfilled the law enough to get justified by God? Rather, they should know the gospel clearly, make a, make a clear conscience profession of faith and understanding that Christ died in their place, that Christ is all they have. And having made that profession, then they ought to press forward in maturity. They ought to, like children beginning to walk and then run, desire to put one foot forward after another and walk out their salvation and flesh it out, make it mature. Like bread that takes time to rise, first it slowly rises and then suddenly that is what the Christian life should be, a sanctification which the ingredients for the rise of that bread are in from the beginning of the making of the loaf and then we watch it come to maturity. That's what I believe is the New Testament understanding of sanctification. 
And look at what Paul does in these verses. You see, we often say the law is not important to Christians, but look at what Paul appeals to. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment. You see, he quotes from the Ten Commandments, and then he goes on to say any other commandment, not saying any other in the Ten, any other in the rest of what we understand to be the moral understanding of God's law. Any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, Paul is not coming up with this doctrine on his own. This is what Christ himself taught. When someone came to Christ and said, what do I need to do for God to approve of me? He says, you need to keep the law. And what, are the, what is the most important commandment? And then Jesus says, to love God and to love your neighbor. See, Jesus is not replacing the law, he's summarizing. This is, this is Christ's understanding of all of God's word is love God and love neighbor. They're not opposed to the law, they are the law. So God's law word must be understood as his royal proclamation. I want you to think of it's, it's hard for us as, as citizens of a democratic republic for us to understand the words edict and proclamation. You see, when, when a law is being decided in our world, we have legislatures who debate for years before they ever decide anything, and then it's very quickly contested in a court and struck down, or it's changed by the next legislature. And uh, as I think G.K. Uh, G.K. Chesterton said, you know, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. Um, the, the point that he's making is it's very inefficient. But man is not the lawgiver. That's why writing law is hard. But God is the lawgiver. And so as Christians, we must understand God's word. I've been using the word law, but God's word as his royal edict, his royal proclamation. It's an announcement of the things that concern his heart. And so when I claim to be justified by Christ, when I claim that Christ is my Lord and my Savior and my King, I am simultaneously saying my need for his rescue as a king who protects his people and also his, his right to announce what his kingdom should look like. That is, the laws which are given by the king describe the nature and style of the kingdom. Understanding that, sin, therefore, is not just making bad decisions. We think of sin, we've adopted a view of sin, which is this kind of noetic view of sin, which is helpful, but it's not the complete story. We see sin as a sickness or sin as a marring of the soul or a perversion of our emotional capacities and our, our thinking processes and our appetites. But sin is not just a perversion of my life. It also is high-handed rebellion against the king whom I profess to love. Many Christians are fighting the battle of sin, wanting to get some sort of healing, and that is good. You, you ought to live according to God's ways. Living, uh, a, a theologian by the name of Douglas Wilson talks about this in, in the phrase, he says that sin can't ever be blessed because God doesn't bless stupid. <laughs> and, and it's offensive because it's trying to say that, that sin is trying to live against the way that God has set up his world. It is attempting to be your own God. 
And so he uses that phrase to, to help explain, yes, sin does have a destructive effect against myself and against my neighbors, against whom I'm related to, but that is the horizontal view of sin. Sin also has to be understood as rebellion against the high king. And it's not just passive rebellion, it's high-handed rebellion. That phrase is very important to remember. We, we often lose the battle of sin because we are so self-focused that we are just concerned about stopping the damage we're inflicting to ourselves and others. But we never elevate our gaze to see what sin is. It's rejection against the king who's invited us to come into his kingdom. Therefore, God's law is an objective standard which defines how I view obedience in his kingdom. As a citizen of his kingdom, I want to live in such a way as I please the king. The king is already favorably disposed to me. He's already extended the scepter of righteousness to me. I've come into his throne room. Like Mephibosheth eating at David's table, I've been granted a place in his house that I don't deserve and couldn't earn. In fact, just like Mephibosheth was the grandson of of David's archenemy Saul, likewise, I have been invited into a king's table when I am the children of the rebels. And yet, at the same time, having been granted this place, I ought to want to live in such a way as I'm living in harmony and in love with this king who died for me. Verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. It's impossible to state it in any clearer terms. Paul is saying, love is not what you call it. Love is not accepting and approving of all sorts of behaviors. Love is doing God's law. Paul does not call them to waking from the slumber of unrepentance, but of that carnal state or carnal manner of living that Christians are susceptible to from time to time. There is a a very important word. It's one of the so-called seven deadly sins, and that word is sloth. And if you've ever seen the animal which they've also given this name, the reason it's called a sloth is because it moves very slowly. You can put a sloth on a tree, and then you can go do anything you want, and you can come back, and it'll still be on the tree. Because it very slowly is going to where it needs to get to. This is why this sin is called a deadly sin, because it destroys your soul. Verse 11, besides this, he's, he's saying, in addition to understanding that love is fulfilling the law, or love is keeping the law, He says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to awake from sleep. I love this imagery because what Paul is saying is that the the advent of Christ, the coming of Christ, has inaugurated a grand day. He says, for salvation is nearer to you or nearer to us now than when we first believed. Remember at this point that Paul is not writing to the Roman city. He is writing to the Roman church. This was not a letter announced in the public square at the start. It was announced and read in the church and announced and applied in the church. Only then does it have the power to go and be proclaimed in the public square when when the church's people are living according to God's word. The call to wakefulness must be heard as a warning against a real danger to which you and I are susceptible. I'm going to say that again. His call to wakefulness must be heard as a warning against a real danger to which you and I are susceptible. 
Paul is not giving a warning and then out of the other side of his mouth saying, but you're a Christian, it's fine. You can just assume God's mercy is on you. You don't have to listen to what I'm saying. That's what we often do. We short circuit the effect of the word because we don't allow the warning to leave its mark, but instead we short circuit the word. We, we play pitchfork with the word. We see how it applies to our neighbor, but rarely do we let it land upon ourselves. And this is what I think Paul is saying. You know the time. He's writing to the Roman church that it's time for you to wake up from sleep. Many Christians at various times become dull to their condition, and this produces a deadness to their spiritual reality. They begin to coast. They begin to live as if everything is just going to work out. There's this phrase when people are asking about, you know, what view of eschatology you have. Some people jokingly say, I'm a pan-millennialist. It'll all pan out, right? It doesn't matter how it happens. It'll, we'll make it. This is what many Christians presume about their spiritual state. They begin to live on autopilot. Again, Douglas Wilson talks about no one ever backslide. No one ever woke up uh, and said, today I plan to backslide. Backsliding is a process. And I, I believe what Paul's warning against is he's warning against a spiritual slumber, which is not the slumber of unregeneration, but the slumber which sometimes attends to Christian living in which we begin to ignore the warnings of God. We begin to presume upon God's grace and we then begin to coast. Indifference, that is indifference to God's word and apathy to God's word, to the condition of the lost, to our need to love our neighbor, towards quick obedience, this sort of indifference and apathy produces a tolerance of known sin which wars against the conscience. This is how, this is how most backsliding begins. I have a problem in my life I love that sin, which I'm not warring against, and then I begin to tolerate it. I become apathetic to, I have no, I have no suffering. That sin is apathy. It, it's without sickness. It's, it's without disgust. I begin to love that sin. I tolerate that sin. And then that manifests or mushrooms into a dullness of spirit. Why? Because the enemy knows quite well that according to my new nature, I ought to be making war against that sin, and yet I've made peace with that sin. Tolerating sin, therefore, produces a callousness to, in the heart to the word of God and the voice of the Spirit. Never trust your decision-making processes in a bad season in which you are away from the word and away from the voice of the Spirit. This is, the book of Hebrews talks about this as the hardening or deceitfulness of sin. That is, sin is not just rebellion against God. It's also what I talked about, that, that war against our own conscience. It is both and, not either or. And so sin has a deadening effect in which my conscience is calloused. It becomes seared. You want to know what, what that word means, seared? It's like when you have a steak, and it, at first it's really tender, and then what happens? You throw it in a very hot iron skillet. And what, what takes place is that flesh that was pliable and, and squishy immediately becomes hard. And it becomes crusted over. It becomes, in that case, delicious. But in, <laughs> in, the, in the other way, it becomes, it becomes dead. It, there's no chance once you fry that steak of bringing it back to life. 
That is what the word warns us against in the deceitfulness of the hardening of sin. You've heard it said that the road to hell is paved with good intentions, and that's an equivocation because, you know, I, said, I, I hurt someone, and then they say, well, I had good intentions. And so we've, you know, society has brought forth the quote, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And what I would say is that what Paul's talking about is the road to hell is paved with a thousand little compromises. At first, it's I'm going to neglect the righteous use of the means of grace. I'm going to not attend church with my brothers and sisters. I'm going to neglect reading the word. I'm going to ignore the commands to private prayer. I'm going to neglect the poor in my offering. I'm going to, you know, tell lies. I'm going to open up that incognito tab. I'm going to look at that movie that I shouldn't watch. This is the ongoing progressive effect of sin in a believer's life. Backsliding does not happen on any given day. It happens on a whole series of days, one after another after another. And this is exactly what Paul is calling his Christians to awake from. He says, awake, it is now a new day. Paul's command to wakefulness should be heard in concert with the rest of the New Testament to make war against ongoing corruption. What do I mean by the phrase ongoing corruption? Though you are justified by faith in Christ alone, though you become a new creation by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, though those things happen, we still have an enemy called the flesh. I was listening to a sermon by a wonderful pastor named John Piper last night, and he was describing his theory of the book of Romans, and I thought it was fitting because of where we're at in our lectionary today. He, he highlights that Satan does not show up in the book of Romans until chapter 16. That all of the warfare and language of fighting sin in the book of Romans is against the flesh. It's not against some spiritual warfare which is outside of me, it is against the flesh, the ongoing corruption, which is part of the Christian walk. Therefore, I want to read a few verses from Paul and one from Peter. He says in Colossians 3, put to death what is earthly among you. Have you ever killed an animal? Some of you live on a farm. We have some people who live on a farm. You've surely seen animals killed. If you have ever uh, taken up, you know, having to put down a, a pet, you know it must be decisive. There was this one moment in my life where I had to, it was, it was early as I was a young man and I had to rise to the occasion. A possum had been hit by a car and it was writhing around in agony. And I was, it, it, I was just on the scene and I decided to act. I took a shovel and I put it out of its misery because it was toast. And I had to be very decisive in putting it to death. Have you ever tried to kill a fly in your house? You must take effort. You must chase it down and kill it. I have a television which my fly, there are flies in my house and they want to land on it. And I'm at this, war, do I want to kill it or do I want to keep my TV clean? And you must choose to fight against what Paul is saying in Colossians 3, what is earthly in you. Be watchful, act like men. 1 Corinthians 16, Paul says this, and he's not saying this to the women to not be gentle. He's saying this in the context of war. Men who are in war do not sleep when the enemy is near. 
They take turns watching. Be watchful. Act like men. For, uh, Romans 6, we coincidentally had it in the, in the Sunday school hour. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Don't let it rain. Don't presume to coast. Take action. Again, in Romans 8, if by the Spirit you kill the deeds of the body, you will live. Is Paul saying that I have to kill sin in order to be justified? No, he's saying that those who are justified want to kill sin. Peter joins in, lest you say, well, that's just Paul's theology. Peter says, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Do you understand that's what sin is? It is destroying your soul. Christians are commanded in the New Testament to war against spiritual drowsiness by the grace of God, not against God's grace or in addition to God's grace, but through God's grace to war against spiritual drowsiness according to the gospel. Not adding to the gospel. This is in the kernel of the gospel. It is walking out the gospel. Knowing that the advent of Christ has inaugurated a gospel day, a aeon or an age of light, a time of light, Paul then commands them to renounce evil. He says, the night is far gone. What is he talking about? He's talking about the darkness which overshadowed the entire world before the manifestation of God's righteousness in the person and work and death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. And through Jesus Christ coming to the earth, paying our debt, and coming alive again, he has ushered in the new covenant, which Paul calls the day, and he describes this old way of life as a night, which is far gone. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Paul is talking to Christians who presume themselves to be members of the church. This is where that letter is being read. Verse 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies. I want to pause there. That verse is often translated as orgies, but the essence of its actual meaning is talking about carousing or parties or some translations call it rioting. This is, this is the sort of life that you, uh, when I was living in Utah, it's very common for people to go out in the desert and have what they call raves which is very, you know, it, it describes what goes on there. He's not just talking about orgies in the sense that we understand from the Roman age. He's talking about groups of people engaging in revelry together. Drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. And I would have to say how fitting are Paul's words today. The Roman culture and modern American culture are very similar in this. And indeed, all cultures of the world have been similar in this regard. It's not just getting really bad, it's been really bad. In that they celebrate things which God law expressly pro pro prohibits, and they revel in them, they delight in them, they take joy in them. Sexual perversion, drunkenness, which I would also include with drug use, pornography and greed are dragnets. They swallow all men and they tear them down and bring them down and drag them down to hell. This is the sort of thing which takes the appetite of every man, woman, and child. This is what Paul is warning them against. This is the way of the world and what he's saying is to the Christians, don't continue to live that way. Many Christians flirt with such things, especially through media, claiming liberty in Christ to their own peril. 
But these are the exact things that Christ has saved us from. It is not just escaping hell at the end of our life. It is a breaking in of the power and grace of God today, which is included in the gospel. I wanted to read a quote from Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, in a sermon on the nature of false conversion or the, the, the way of false conversion. He says, The unsaved sinner loves a salvation from hell. The true Christian loves a salvation from sin. Everyone desires to be saved from the pit, but it is only a child of God who pants to be saved from every false way. That is what David is asking for in the Psalms. Remove from me every false way. Paul then tells them instead to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He commands them to stop living in this manner, and that is a negative command. And then here is the positive command. He says, verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. To put on Christ means, therefore, first to receive his righteousness in your place. That is the first aspect of what putting on Christ means. It means to recognize my need for a righteousness that is alien to myself, that could never be produced by me. It is to freely admit and joyfully admit that I could never be justified in God's sight. That as a rebel, as a constitutional rebel, as someone who loves sin, I could never approach God. But then to see Christ, understanding my great need, to not despair of my great need, but to lay hold of the grace of God, which is made present to me in the gospel, and it is to appropriate the, appropriate the grace of God by faith. It is to look upon the death of Christ as being done in my place and in my stead, and from there, begin to walk out. It is to yield up care for my soul to the Lord. We sang a song here on Friday night during our prayer time about yielding our soul to the Lord, that our heart and our soul would yield to the prompting of the Lord. So to put on Christ first means to do it by faith. And then the second means also must be done by faith. But it is this, Christians are to exercise faith in Christ and imitate him in his manner of life. First John tells us that if anyone claims to be alive... He must walk in the manner that Christ walks. Isn't that an amazing commandment? Isn't that an amazing description of what it means to be a Christian? To, to walk like Jesus walked? To do the sort of things that he did? To live in the sort of way that he lived? One of the things that I love about the New Testament is shows us that, that Christ did not begrudgingly do the will of God, but he joyfully do, did the will of God. He subjected his will to God's will, and he provided a model for us. It was not just joyful to Christ on a tangential side. He didn't just get the benefit from doing God's will. He wanted to do God's will, and it was joyful to him. We, therefore, are to make no provision for the flesh, for, as Romans 6 tells us, we must consider ourselves dead to sin. Part of the way that making provision for the flesh happens is Christians presume, well, you know, I've always dealt with this problem. And, you know, I just, I have this weakness. You don't understand my backstory. This is where I, I'm, what I'm coming out of. Those may be true things about your past, but in the Christian gospel, your old man dies and you come a life in Christ. You may have things that you have to work out. Indeed, the, 
the Christian gospel commands us to be renewed, but part of that renewing, indeed maybe even the first step of that renewing, is that we're told to consider ourselves dead to sin. That we are not to make much of the old nature. That we are not to prop it up and make it and use it as an excuse. This is what making a provision for the flesh means. It's kind of like hedging your bet on righteousness. Well, if walking like Christ doesn't work out, I can always revert back to my old ways. I can always trust in at least striving in my own effort instead of yielding and leaning on Christ's effort. Likewise, Paul says in Ephesians 4, he says, give no opportunity to the devil. I just want to emphasize, even though I'm quoting that verse, give no opportunity to the devil, most of the time Paul's talking about making provision for the flesh. He's, he's, he's warning against this default understanding that though I'm called to live like Christ now, though I profess Christ now, that I still can tolerate ongoing perpetual sin. And Paul is saying, you cannot live that way. Instead, even as we approach baptism today, we must remember that we were called out of such things by the powerful gospel of Christ. Uh, one of the warnings in the New Testament is those who, who claim the power of God's gospel but deny the power thereof. Most Christians, especially as a church, we have a lot of familiarity with the, the charismatic outpouring of the Spirit. We hear that verse, and though it does apply to those who would reject and refuse the anointing of the Holy Spirit, it also equally applies to those who claim the gospel but do not claim the gospel is power enough, powerful enough to produce a transformation. They claim to hold to a form of godliness, but they deny the power. They refuse to acknowledge the power of the gospel or don't want it to be fully manifested in their lives. I want to close now reading from Romans 6, just the first four verses, which we heard earlier today in the Sunday school hour. And again, I think it is a wonderful coincidence I believe the Holy Spirit would want to emphasize these words. But as we close our service here in the next few moments with communion and then going to baptism, I want to call you, you who have been baptized, to remember your baptism and to remember it as not just a profession of faith, but also a calling out of the world and into Christ's kingdom. Romans 6 verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? For we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we proceed at the end of this service to, uh, to baptism, that you would remind us of that hour that we first believed, and also, Lord, that we would be able to, by your grace, to completely transcend that first hour, that we would grow in grace, that we would put to death what's earthly among us, that we would make use of the grace available in the gospel, that you would perform within us the miracle of sanctification. Lord, we ask that as we remember our baptism, that we would not despair of ongoing corruption, but today would hear your charge to put on Jesus Christ. Amen.